the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Imagine you're in an airport, sitting at your gate. Your luggage is by your side, your ticket is in your hand, and you're just waiting for the boarding call. They announce that your flight is finally boarding and the people begin lining up. One by one, they filter through the gate and begin the long walk down the corridor to the plane. The line of passengers moves quickly at first, but then it slows and finally stops at this tiny little door on the side of the plane. The painstaking process of people slowly filtering into the plane and finding their seats seems to take forever, but slowly, surely, you inch ever closer to the door. But just as you get to the door, just as it's finally your turn to step on board, the stewardess stops you and very sternly says, no, you can't come in. Now, this confuses you. So you show her your ticket. You show her that you have a seat number. You explain that she has no right to stop you from being on that flight and that you have every right to be on it. But she just dismisses everything you say. You may have thought you had a reservation. You thought you had a seat. But there's some obscure regulation that gives her the ability to prevent you from boarding the flight. So she dismisses you with no concern about where you'll go or how you'll get there. She closes the door and you watch as your flight leaves without you. Now guys, if that happened to you, how would you feel? How would you react being locked out of a place where you thought you belonged? I'm sure all of us would be appalled. We would feel betrayed, singled out, harassed. We would be confused and no doubt feel quite angry. If something like that happened to you, you may well describe it by using the word unjust. And guys, the truth is, that analogy is how many in our world view the gospel of Jesus. They see the exclusive claims of Christ, his claim of being the narrow door to God, as a claim of arrogance and hate. An arbitrary claim that needlessly excludes and unjustly condemns. And let's be honest, on the surface at least, there seems to be a few similarities between my analogy and the gospel. In my analogy and the gospel text, you have a person who fully expects to be welcomed, only to be told that their entry was denied. My analogy and the gospel text leave the reason for their denial a little fuzzy and maybe even a little arbitrary. And finally, the one who denies entry in both my analogy and the text comes across a little cold, a little indifferent to those who were being shut out. So... Is that analogy a good description of our gospel text? Is that analogy a good description of the gospel itself? That question is where I want to spend our time this morning. Because the gospel of Christ and the exclusive claims he makes aren't rooted in arrogance or hate at all. Christ is anything but indifferent or arbitrary in the pronouncements that he makes. And what I want to do this morning is to explain to you how the story told in Luke 13 can help us understand that, not only in the situation in Israel, but also in our world today. So if you haven't yet, please take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. <clears throat> so we'll start with our text. Essentially, the text itself revolves around a question and an answer. The question is this. Lord, will those who are saved be few? 
Now, let's make a very crucial distinction at the beginning. What this guy means when he uses the word saved is not the same exact thing Christians mean when we speak of being saved. Not the same exact thing. When Christians speak of being saved or of salvation, we necessarily include the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. We necessarily include the ascension and the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. When we use the word saved, or when the word saved is used in Luke chapter 13, none of those things have happened yet. So the immediate context for the word saved in Luke 13 is some generalized idea of being delivered or preserved. But that begs the question, delivered or preserved from what? The man who asks the question seems to think that something ominous is coming, something that warrants a deliverance. He seems to think that Jesus believes something like that is coming as well. But what could Jesus have done or said to give this man that idea? Well, as it turns out, you don't have to look far to find that answer. As Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem and to the cross, he is constantly speaking about a coming judgment of Israel. As chapter 13 opens, we see that Jesus is asked a question. And the exchange between Jesus and his questioner went something like this. This is the, the Bubba version. Hey, Jesus, there were some pilgrims that Pilate slaughtered. Were their deaths the result of this judgment you're always talking about? And Jesus answered their question like this. No. No, it isn't. But unless you repent, you will all die in the same way. Jesus was saying something like, those people killed by Pilate are not an example of the judgment I'm talking about. The judgment that I'm talking about is still on the way. And if you repent, you can escape it. But if you fail to repent, then the judgment of God will fall upon you, and your deaths will be no different from those people Pilate killed. Immediately after that, Jesus speaks about the coming judgment for Israel again. This time he does so by using the parable of the fig tree. That parable goes like this. A fig tree had been fruitless for three years, and since it had borne no fruit, there was a conversation about cutting it down. But before judgment was passed, it was decided that the fig tree would receive one last chance. Everything it could possibly need to bear fruit would be given to it. Absolutely nothing would be withheld. So if it failed to bear fruit after that, then the tree would be cut down and removed from the vineyard. Sounds fair enough. Now, you don't need to be a biblical scholar to understand that this parable isn't about the farming advice of Jesus. No, Jesus used the imagery of a fig tree because Israel itself was often symbolized as and associated with a fig tree. And so as soon as Jesus brought up a fig tree in this parable, every single Jew with an earshot would have made the same immediate connection. Jesus was saying that Israel, the fig tree, had been rooted in the land, had been protected and cared for. Israel had been stewarded and loved, and yet she was still unfruitful. And God could have cut her down then and there, but he didn't. In an act of supreme mercy and patience, in an attempt to cultivate the fruitfulness of Israel, God would pull out all of the stops and provide Israel with everything she needed to bear fruit. With the coming of Jesus, the days of seeking God on mountaintops or in temples were at an end. The enfleshed Son of the Father was now walking the streets of Israel. 
He was speaking to the people face to face. By God himself being in their midst, he was fertilizing unfertile soil. He was cultivating the dead hearts of men and providing the absolute best conditions under which Israel could bear fruit. Everything at God's disposal was being done to make Israel fruitful. Everything God could possibly do for Israel, he was doing. But by the time of Luke 13, as his crucifixion edged closer and closer, most of Israel still bore no fruit. Even though they were being supplied with everything they could possibly need, their hearts were still hard. Their branches were still barren. Even after all God had done for Israel, Israel remained unfruitful anyway. And just like in the parable of the fig tree, an unfruitful Israel would be cut down. Judgment was coming for them. And Jesus was telling anyone who would listen, deliverance was still possible. It's into that context into that swirling story of Israel's pending judgment that some unnamed man approaches Jesus and asks him the question from our gospel text today. Lord, will those who are saved, will those who are going to be delivered be few? And if you can understand that question is being asked in a context where God himself is providing the best possible conditions for Israel to bear fruit, then you will see that whatever this coming judgment meant for Israel, God was providing every means to avoid it. This judgment wasn't a surprise or random. It wasn't arbitrary or vindictive. God wasn't doing this because he hated them and he wanted them to die. No, he made every provision for the exact opposite. Every provision for fruitfulness and life. But many in Israel set their hearts against God anyway. They absolutely refuse to bear fruit. The answer Jesus gives to that question, will those who are saved from this coming judgment be few, is this. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. The answer of Jesus seems to suggest that it will be few indeed that escape the coming judgment in Israel. Now, if you understand anything of the history of Israel at all, you'll understand just how tragic that response truly was. Israel was supposed to be the people of God, the ones with whom the covenant was made. They were the keepers of the law, the stewards of the temple. They were the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob themselves. It was these people, God's people, who were now in the best possible conditions to recognize God and for their hearts to bear fruit. Yet they refused. And this is where I think a major distinction can be made between my airplane analogy and the gospel text. The judgment that was received in the airplane analogy was arbitrary. It was totally random and it was unexplained. It was without basis and without any provision being made for deliverance. But as you have clearly seen, that was simply not the case in Luke 13. That is simply not the case in the gospel of Christ. Some think that Christ being the narrow door is too exclusive, that his claim of being the only way to God is a claim made out of pride or arrogance. But the exclusive claims of Jesus aren't made because he wants to be mean to other religions. No. The exclusive claims of Jesus are rooted in the reality of his sonship, 
He is the Son of the Father, and by the Spirit, He perfectly reveals the Father to us. And there is no one else, there is no other name under heaven who can image the Father better than the Son. Some think that Christ's judgment is arbitrary or vindictive, but if you think that, you fail to see, just as Israel did, that every provision is being made for you, everything needed to cultivate your heart and mind so that you might see and believe are being employed by God for you. God is pulling out all the stops in his pursuit of you because he desires that you were delivered as well. He desires not your death, but that you live. He wants to cultivate your life and make you fruitful. God desires a place in your life that's intimate and with you, his very life in you, and for you to literally live with him forever. Man, whatever else that is, that's the exact opposite of not caring about you. That's the exact opposite of vindictive and arbitrary. That is purposeful. That is aimed at you. That is the clearest expression of love and goodness and holiness and purity that humans have ever witnessed. And he's offering it to you. But Christ himself knew that despite all attempts and evidence to the contrary, there would still be those who continued in their barrenness. There would still be those who spent their entire lives pursuing death. And I think our gospel text gives us one reason as to why that is. In the story Jesus tells in our gospel text, Jesus says that those shut out at the master's house were of the opinion that they shouldn't be locked out at all. They knew the master. They had seen him around town, and so they should be inside of that master's house too. So they knock on the master's door, they identify themselves, and they have every expectation that the master will let them in. But when they knock and identify themselves, the master responds to their request by telling them, I don't have the first idea who you people are or from where you've come. They had every expectation of being let in, only to find themselves completely shut out. But how in the world could something like that happen? How could it be possible that you're convinced the master knows you, but the master denies it? How could so many in Israel be convinced that they were on the side of God only to discover that they were exactly wrong? The answer to that question about Israel's blindness is where this text connects with our world today. In Israel, many were absolutely convinced that Jesus was a blasphemer, that he was possessed of the devil, and he was a slanderer of God's name. So to honor God, they stood against Jesus at every single turn. They argued against him in every single word he said. The image of Christ did not match the God they worshipped, so they fought him tooth and nail. They fought God under the guise of devotion to him. And you see the exact same thing in our world today. Scores and scores of people push back against the gospel of Christ. They slander his name and attack his church. Everything that Christ calls good, everything that Christ has instituted as sacred and pure, they hate and despise as all that is loathsome and vile. And they do this because the image of Christ does not match the God they worship either. 
The God worshipped by many today is a God fashioned and curated by the hands of men. And any deviation from that image, any proclamation of a counter-image, is seen as blasphemy. It is seen by the world as sin. So when God gives them something that is truly good, all they see is scandal. When God speaks words of truth to them, all they hear is blasphemy and lies. They serve a master that does not exist, and by doing so, they miss their true master, their intended master, standing right in front of them. You see how deep and tragic this story really is? Jesus came to Israel to make it fruitful. He came to provide the best conditions possible for them. He came to offer them all they lacked and everything God had promised. But everything that God offered them through Christ was systematically rejected. All that would heal them was seen as infectious. All that would nourish them was rejected as garbage. All that was good and holy and divine was rejected as evil and filthy and demonic. Israel could not claim to serve God and yet oppose Jesus. It would not work. Because he was the living, breathing manifestation of the God they said they worshipped standing in their midst. If God spoke the truth but Israel called it lies, how would they ever see If God came to Israel, yet they accuse him of being the devil, then how could they ever believe? If everything God did to make Israel bear fruit was itself seen as an attack upon their lives, then bearing fruit was impossible for them. If Israel despised everything that could bring them life, then death was all that was left for them. And what was true for Israel then is true for our world today. Christ makes every provision for you to live. He takes every conceivable step to cultivate your hearts in the hopes that you bear fruit. He has done all that is necessary for you to live with him as his bride, as sons and daughters of the Father himself to live with him in an intimate union so profound and beautiful that we can barely speak of it without blushing. He has made a way for us to live with him like that forever. So the question for everyone in our world today is exactly the same as it was for Israel 2,000 years ago. Will we scoff at God and continue in our stubborn, stubborn barrenness destined only for death? Or will we receive everything he desires to give us and live? Amen. Let us confess our faith in the